two or three times a year we have a service with no musical accompaniment whatsoever, and I always look forward to them. Uh, I make no secret of the fact that I think the organ is generally the best instrument for public worship. The reason for that is even an electronic organ imitates a real organ which breathes, and we breathe. It imitates the human voice. And especially if you're learning a new, a new hymn, listening to the organ enables you to follow along. Piano is a percussion instrument. Sometimes when we sing, especially in large gatherings, you don't hear the lower registers, but it, it helps you with the pitch. Other instrumentation helps in a variety of ways, and, and, and we're appreciative when we can gather all of these instruments together. But there's no instrument like the human voice. There just isn't. And can you imagine what it would have been like for our covenanting fathers in the highlands of Scotland and the lowlands as they were persecuted and they gathered in the vales and, and they sang the psalms with no musical accompaniment, what it must have been like. And from my perspective here, it's a wonderful thing because I can hear so many people in our congregation sing parts, and I can hear all of the parts coming together so beautifully that it's, a, it's really a, a picture uh, to me. Uh, it, it expresses to me uh, something of the unity of the body of Christ. Uh, when we hear all of these various parts come together in this marvelous and unified way. And so on occasion we do this, and I'm thankful that we do. Now, as you know, we're working our way through Matthew. However, uh, be patient with me. It's going to be a little while before I get us back into Matthew. Matthew is a very long book, and uh, I think for a variety of reasons, it's a good thing that I have an occasional break. I will break this week. I will break the next at least once in September. Uh, and then after that, we'll be in it until we get close to Christmas, I think. But uh, I'm preaching a couple of uh, independent texts. Uh, Lectio Continua. You preach what comes next when you preach through a book. But occasionally, Lectio Selecta. You select a text uh, that you think will be of encouragement to the people of God. So I ask, if you will, to turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. I even hear well-educated ministers from time to time say revelations, but it's revelation, revelation, the first chapter. And our focus this morning will be on five, chapter one, five B and six, but I would like to begin at verse one and read through uh, verse seven so that we hear the context together. Let us bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, open, we pray, this word to our minds and to our hearts and to our consciences. May we set aside every distraction, every disturbance, anything that may have, may have uh, distracted our focus from, from you and from worship. Help us to forgive one another. Help us to love one another. Help us to set aside any offense. Help us to come into your presence with one purpose, and that is to hear Jesus, as the text is expounded, speak to our very souls. And we ask, Father, that you will win the lost as well as upbuild the saints, for it is the same gospel that is operative through the power of your Spirit in both cases. And we pray and ask these things in the name of our lovely and wonderful Lord, Jesus Christ, the mediator, the only mediator between God and man. Amen. Revelation. 1, beginning at verse 1, this is the word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. 
He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of his prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Now our text again, chapter 1, 5b and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John, writing by divine inspiration, cannot write a full five verses before he breaks out into doxology breaks out into praise to the living and the true God, especially as he considers that the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He cannot contemplate this without breaking out into praise. This should never be commonplace. We should always marvel that Christ has come into the world, saved sinners, and that he rose from the dead. And so he breaks out into the spontaneous praise and spent spontaneous doxology. Now, this should characterize every Christian life. But I also want us to understand that this is totally unnatural. No one by nature praises God, not the true and the living God. No one by nature loves God. No one by nature wants to glorify God. This is supernatural. This is the work of the grace of God to change our hearts and to cause us to love what once we hated, to love the God that once we despised, so that now we live for His praise and live for His glory. And that's what John is demonstrating to us in this chapter. That only God's grace can produce a heart like this. And so the first thing that I want us to see together, the first thing is... The doxological heart, the heart that praises God. Now, may I remind you that the Bible is filled with this. (laughs) You can hardly turn a page without finding it, and it's especially rich and wonderful when we read it in the works of the apostles. For example, do you remember how the Apostle Paul comes to the end of his discussion of the sovereignty of grace, And in chapter 11 of the book of Romans, he breaks out into doxology. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For of him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He can't help himself, but breaks out into doxology and praise. Another example. 
the Apostle Paul in Ephesians has been contemplating the love of God and the love of Christ. And as he comes to the end of the third chapter of Ephesians, again, he can't contain. It simply overflows from his heart. And he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul is so wonderful at this that, again, in 1 Timothy, he simply breaks out into praise in the first chapter in verse 17 when he says, To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Or back here in Revelation, look over to the book of Jude, just across the page, and the last two verses. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And all of this could be readily multiplied that from the hearts of the apostles who know Christ, they simply cannot contain but break out into spontaneous praise so often in their writings. Now, what produces such a heart? Well, as we look at the text this morning, I briefly will mention to you that what produced this heart in John was, first of all, the fact that he knew that God loved his heart. He begins by saying to him who loves us. We'll say more about that in a moment, but for now, his heart is moved by the love of Christ for him. It's a heart that knows that it is loved by Christ that cannot help but praise him. But also, it's an assured heart. He comes before the one that he really knows and knows him. He comes before the presence of the God who has saved and redeemed him. Of this he is sure. And because he has an assured heart, he can't help but praise God. But also, a heart of doxology is produced when the heart is filled with amazement. Now, that's John for sure. He is amazed at the person of Christ, to him who loves us. That him is, is full and rich. He's the second person of the Trinity who became man. He went to a cross. He rose from the dead. He's ascended on high. He's coming again. This is the one to whom he offers praise and doxology. Christ was no abstraction to John. He was no paper figure. How many of you here today have a real knowledge of Christ as Lord and Savior, let me ask. How many of you perhaps have read about him? You know that he was a history in figure in history, but to you he's really not personal to you any more than Napoleon Bonaparte is personal to you. The Apostle John knew him and was amazed that he was known of him, that he is fellowshipping with him, and that he's part of the throng of the redeemed that sing his praises. His heart is filled with amazement because Christ is who he is. He is real. He is true. He is his personal Lord, personal Savior. He is utterly amazed because Christ is no abstraction to him. Is Christ an abstraction to you or do you know him for who he is? Now that's the doxological heart. The second thing I want you to see as we actually look more deeply into the text are the reasons for doxology, the reasons for praise that John gives to us here. 
The first motive or reason for doxology is Christ's love. Look at the text. To him who loves us. Now, I find this to be amazing and surprising, don't you? We would not be surprised knowing something about our hearts if we turned to a text such as this and it said, to him who pitied us. I know that I needed pity. But when I consider my heart and how distant I am from God by nature, how completely cut off because I have broken his law, because my heart is dead in trespasses and sins, do you not find it amazing that he doesn't simply say to him who pities us, but he says to him who loves us. He loved me when I was unlovely. He loved me when I was ungodly. He loved me when I had nothing whatsoever to offer. He loved me though I was graceless. He loved me though I despised his truth. To him who loves us. Since our sin is an affront to the majesty of Almighty God, I hope your heart is moved to hear to him who loves us. And it's a present tense. The old translation says to him who loved, but it's a present tense. To him who loves. He has loved us in eternity past. He loves us in the present. He will love us for eternity. It is a present tense. It is a present tense. A present linear. He has always loved us. He loves us now. He always will love his people. He loved you in his decree of election. He loved you when he became incarnate. He loved you when he went to the cross. He loved you in the grave. He loved you in his resurrection. He loves you in his ascension work. He will love you when he comes again. And it will always, always be. He loves us. You see, we are not loosed, freed from our sins because of anything we do. We are not loved because we are freed from sins. We are freed from sins because He loves us. He didn't love us because we were lovely. When we ask the question, why does He love me? The only possible answer is, He loves me because He loves me. That's all. That's all I can say. And about that love, had we time to survey Scripture, we would see that it is an infinite, eternal love. It is an abiding love. He loves us. That it is an immutable love. It is unchangeable. God's love for us, the love of Jesus for us, is not fickle. That it is a love that delights in its object. He delights in you, in Christ Jesus the Lord. It is a love that is particular. He has a people and he calls his sheep by name. It is a love that is efficacious. It's not just wishful thinking that he will save you. He loves you and he promises to save his people. And as we consider all of this, it is an incomprehensible love. Who can comprehend such great love, such infinite, eternal, unchangeable love as this for his people? And Do you know what that means for you? It means for you that you are secure in the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. When can a true believer be lost? When Satan can climb up to God's throne and dethrone the Lord Jesus Christ. When he can tear out his heart of love. When he can make his blood of no value. When he can rip out of our very bodies and souls the Spirit of God who is the earnest of our inheritance. Then you can be lost, which means never. His love for you keeps you always. 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when you sing that great hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly, fly there. Because he loves you, child of God. He loves you, always has, loves you now, always will. That's the first reason for praise, for doxology, to him who loves us. But look on in the text. The next reason for praise to him who loves us is this. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. He has freed us because we were bound and we were fettered. We could not loose ourselves. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We could not save ourselves. We could not bring ourselves into a savable state. We could not believe on Him. We could not repent on our own. We could do nothing. We were bound. And there is only one means of freedom, and that is Christ's shed blood. Because it is the only ransom price because it is the only substitution for sinners, because it is the only way that the law of God can be satisfied and the debt be paid. Now let me ask you this question. Do you understand, and is it a a fixed principle in your heart that the only way that God can remain just and justify the sinner is through the blood of Jesus Christ? You say, well, can't he just relax the law? No, no, no. He can never relax the standard of his law. It's a reflection of his own nature and character. No, no, he couldn't do that and be God. Well, couldn't he just lower the standard and receive our works and our efforts as if they were fully meritorious and through our works we could be saved? No, 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 never. It is impious to speak of the merit of our works. It's the blood of Christ, it's his merit that saves the sinner. It is totally impious to think that we can contribute anything to our salvation. Well, you say, well, he's omnipotent. Can't he just by an act of fiat forgive us and forget the cross? The answer to that is no. I say it reverently, but no. He could not do that. The only way in which he could save us from our sins is through the shed blood of Christ. The nature of God demands atonement. If he is going to forgive us our sins, it demands the shed blood of the infinite Son of God if we are to be saved. My brothers, my sisters, what a God we have. What a God we have that every attribute of God is brought into harmony with the happiness of you, the sinner, in the cross of Christ. That justice has been fully met, the penalty has been completely and fully paid. Don't you love the way John Bunyan speaks of this in the Pilgrim's Progress there in the opening of the book? He has Christian who has this great burden upon his back. And as he's moving along, he's directed by evangelists to the cross. And when he comes to the cross, the burden falls from his back and rolls into the empty tomb. That's what Christ has done for us. Christ freed us from our sins by his own blood. It was his own mighty act. And God does this for us through no work of ours. He has freed us from our sins. That is to say, He has freed you from the bondage of your sin. That bondage of your will. That bondage in which you found your conscience and your affections. That bondage out of which you could not break. He has freed you from the bondage of sin. He has freed you from the penalty of sin. And what is that penalty? That penalty was eternal death. So that he has so freed the believer in Jesus 
from the penalty of sin that hell is barred to a true believer in Jesus Christ. You cannot go there. He has freed you from your guilt so that it's really true that as you believe in Jesus Christ, when you trusted in him, at that moment you were completely absolved from all guilt in his court of law. And he has freed you from the dominion of sin. Not the struggle with sin, but he has freed you from the dominion of sin in your life. No wonder then, in 1 Peter, we see Peter speaking of the precious blood of Christ. Oh, how precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's matter for praise, wouldn't you say? And then he goes on. He says there's another reason for praise. Look at the text. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Now again, the old translation made us kings and priests, but it's not kings. The word is kingdom. Kingdom. It reflects Exodus 19.6 from which Pastor McDonald read this morning. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We who believe in Christ, who are purchased by the blood of Christ, are the true Israel. We have a new citizenship. We are a part of a new kingdom with this reigning King Jesus. And so the text is asserting Christ's right to rule in his kingdom of grace. And if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you submit to his rule. You submit to his word, and you are glad to do so. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You have given over that old yoke and that old bondage for this new yoke and this new bondage, which is life itself. And that is matter for praise. Let me stress this. You are part of a kingdom and there is a king. No Christian is left to himself. We are together a part of a kingdom under the rule and the sway of his word to which we submit And John does not see that as a reason to grumble. John, in this passage, sees that as a reason for praise. Do you? But that's not the only reason. He gives us another reason for praise. Because we are priests. Look at it. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. Priests to God. You, believers form together a priesthood of believers. Now, there are many people who call themselves priests today. And there is only one great high priest of his people who offered an atonement. And when we are called a priesthood of believers, we're making no atonement for sins. What does he mean when he says that we are a priesthood of believers? He means that we are a worshiping people. And that our worship, corporate as well as in our closets, that worship is received through Christ's mediation, merit, and blood. It means that we have access to God. Now, we have representatives in Congress. And uh, you may like or not like your representative in Congress at one time or another, but you have a representative there. But you're not in union with him. You have a representative there, but it stops. All the continuity with what Christ has done stops there. With your great high priest in heaven, you have a representative with whom you have union. You were in union with him when you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You were in union with him when he died for you. You were in union 
with him when he rose for you. You are in union with him even now as he intercedes for you. You have a a great representative before the throne of God. And you are in union with that great representative, which means that you have free access into the presence of the holy and the living God. That's a marvelous thing. You know, when a man or a woman is first converted, there are feelings that develop in the heart. Feelings are very important in the Christian life. They're not foundational. The word is foundational, but they are nonetheless indispensable. The first feeling that we have is there's a God and he's a holy God. And I deserve his displeasure. And the next feeling that develops is, because I deserve his displeasure, as the Spirit of God works within my heart, I realize that I need a Savior. Well, don't you see? Through Christ your Lord, your representative in heaven, you have access to God, and you have free access to him. You may go to him now, and you are received in heaven. And you are a priesthood of believers because we intercede one for another. And because we offer sacrifices. Do we offer sacrifices? Yes, we do. We do not offer the sacrifice of shed blood, but we offer the sacrifice of praise, and we offer the sacrifice of prayer, and we intercede for the people of God. And so we are a worshiping people that have access to God. We intercede for others. We offer sacrifices of prayer and praise. This is what it means when he praises God that he has made us to be priests, unto his God and Father. Now, if we are a kingdom and priest to God, let us live happily under his sovereignty. Let us live royally with a nobility about us. Let us offer our lives in service to him. Let us offer our praise. Let us offer our prayers for others. My friends, What reason the child of God has for praise to the living God? And I'm going to venture to say that if you can read this text and hear these words and there is no response in your heart, what are you talking about? I have no praise in my heart for God for these things. I say it categorically, you're a lost man or woman. For every believer in Jesus Christ must have some echo in his heart when he hears that he is loved and Christ died for him, that he belongs to his kingdom, and that we are a priesthood because of what he has done for us. Every believer will praise him for these things. These are the reasons, the matter for praise. But now let's look at the doxology itself. We've not even seen that yet. The doxology itself, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to God, his God and Father. Now, that's, those are the reasons. Now, here's the doxology. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. That's the doxology. Every child of God desires more than anything the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of Christ. Now, remember... When John the Apostle writes here to him who loved us and freed us from our sins in his own shed blood, he was there when it happened. He saw him. He saw the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was there when Christ paid the penalty and debt for the sins of his people on the cross. He can't help but break out in praise and doxology as he considers these things. But these things are true for you as well, just as true for you as they were for him. And so we also should long for the glory of Jesus Christ. 
What does glory mean? The Hebrew word is kavod, means heavy, weighty. The Greek word is doxa, it means light, brilliance, radiance. When we speak of the glory of God, we're talking about what he is in himself, his own attributes, his own character. We are saying that the weight of his glory and the radiance and beauty of his attributes shine forth in who he is and in all that he does. That's what we mean by glory. And even though philosophers through the ages have so often told us that the chief end of man is his own personal happiness, we are told in this text and others that the chief end of man is the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of God. God alone is glorious, and Jesus is God. Do you ascribe glory to him? You know, in that great commentary on the book of Romans by Robert Haldane, Let me remind you that Haldane was a 19th century Scottish divine. He went to Geneva, and there he found in the 19th century that the gospel, which had once been the the, the place where the gospel was preached in its great purity in the time of the Reformation, the gospel was little, if at all, preached. And he met with theological students who were being taught anti-Trinitarianism, Unitarianism, Socinianism, terrible heresies that damned the soul. And he met with them, and he went through the book of Romans with them. And then he wrote a letter later to one of the unbelieving professors in the divinity school there in Geneva. And he said, do you know? Now, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but do you know? Do you know it was when we came to that 11th chapter of the book of Romans, and we read that great doxology, for of him and through him and to him be all things, to him be the glory that we saw men converted and we saw men change their hearts and their minds changed and their lives and directions changed and transformed. Why? Because before that their concern had been for man, for man, for man, for man, for man, and now their concern was for the glory of God. They saw that he was infinitely worthy of praise, that he loves himself and has every right to love himself, and he demands of his creatures that we love him as well. And that was used of God. To change the heart. Let me ask you, is that what is found within your soul? Do you ascribe praise to him? Do you long to live for his glory and for his praise? And so he praises him in the doxology, wishing that his glory be seen, his glory be manifest, to him be glory, and then he says, and dominion, dominion, Christ's dominion. His dominion is a kingdom of grace. In omnipotent grace, he is even able to say in a service like this at this moment to someone who is outside of Christ, bend, rebel, you bow down before me. You receive my grace and you receive my mercy. And the time is coming when Jesus comes again that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. He desires to see his dominion The dominion of his grace spread through this world, and when he comes again, his dominion consummated in the salvation of his people and the judgment of the wicked. That's what he desires, and that's what we should desire as well. That Christ's glory and his dominion be manifested for a short while, for a few moments, for a number of years. Look at it. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, for eternity to come, forever and ever. You know, we believers in Jesus believe in eternity. 
We believe in the eternal character of our God. We believe in the eternal punishment of the wicked, the eternal bliss of the saved, the eternal glory of the mediator, the eternal dominion of the kingdom of Christ. Daniel says in chapter 7, verse 14, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. His dominion is glory forever and ever. And what a wonder it is that we are now preoccupied with this, don't you think? I wasn't preoccupied this when I was, with this when I was born into the world. I was preoccupied with myself. I'm still far too often preoccupied with self, but a change, a radical change has taken place. A transition from wrath to grace, a regeneration by the Spirit, a wonder of wonders has taken place. And now the people of God are preoccupied with his plan of salvation, what he's doing to bring this world to himself, his glory, his dominion. What a transformation that that should be our preoccupation rather than the things that once captivated our minds and our imaginations. There's a fourth thing I want you to see, and that is the swell of doxology. The swell of doxology. What do I mean by that? I mean, as you read on in the book of Revelation, you find that praise, doxology, grows. Turn to chapter 4. Just to give a few examples, a few in this book, chapter 4, verse 11, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. That's doxology. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, read it with me, people of God, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, read it with me, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. After this, and this is at the end, after the return of Christ. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne And before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, I've told my family when I die I want palm branches surrounding my coffin and not flowers. It represents victory. Palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What do we learn? Praise leads to more praise. We grumble, we complain, we're turned in on ourselves. Listen carefully to the words of James B. Ramsey. He writes on this text, This is not a mere ascription of praise, a mere declaration that such glory and dominion belongs of right to him, but that it is now and ever shall be our highest joy and effort to give him this glory, to glorify him in our bodies and our spirits, living, suffering, and dying, cordially submitting to his government, rejoicing in his dominion, and seeking to extend his blessed reign. Here's the very essence and spirit of this response to the church. In view of his love and blood and the kingly and priestly honors and privileges they have secured, she joyfully acknowledges that the glory of her salvation belongs exclusively to him, both in its purchase, its application, and its final consummation, and expresses her desire and determination to yield herself up wholly to his dominion, both in providence and grace. Can he, beloved, require less? Can we dare to offer less? The objects of such love, the purchase of such blood, the recipients of such blessings, is there any work too hard, any self-denial too great, any suffering too severe by which you may extend his dominion over this wretched world for which he died and manifest your grateful love to him? Is there any sacrifice of personal effort or property by which his kingdom may be advanced, which you can possibly make that you can dare to withhold? And can there be any day so dark, any providences so mysterious, any calamity so crushing that you can doubt the perfect wisdom and love of that dominion which he exercises over all things? Fifth and final point. The last word of doxology. I mean in the text. Look at the text, back there in chapter 1. To him who loves us and has freed, has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The last word, Amen. The word means, so be it. Let things be done as God determines. Let his glory, his dominion, be grand and great and extended. Now let me tell you frankly, I went to this text in part because right now there is a lot of pain in our congregation. You say, well, when isn't there? True. We live in a fallen world. We're fallen people. We have people facing surgeries. We have people that have been caught unawares in sicknesses and diseases. We have families that have been hit really hard with a lot at one time. 
We have families with great financial burdens. We have folks that are out of work. Uh, we, have, uh, we have people who've been caught in sins, and some of whom are re- believing and repenting to the glory of God, and others who are not. Uh, we have emotional stresses and strains and difficulties, and some of us can't sleep at night for worry. We have all of these things and more. John is exiled to the Isle of Patmos. You can get in your car and drive wherever you wish. He's exiled. He doesn't know if he's going to get out of this alive. The book is written, Revelation is written largely to encourage the church in times of persecution. Not when things are going well. Oh, the lie of this prosperity Christianity. That if you obey God and do what he wants you to do, you'll, you'll have... What a lie. Does God send trouble? Yes. Who else? He's sovereign for his own glory, for his own dominion, for the extension of his name, for reasons that I can't comprehend. He's sovereign in it all. We do not live in a chance universe. And so, this text is teaching us that it's in a world like that that we offer this praise. Yes, in heaven to come, but John isn't there yet and he's praising him now and wants us to praise him now because we're loved, because Christ died for us, because we belong to his kingdom, because we're a priesthood of believers. He wants us to praise him now in the midst of our troubles and hardships and difficulties. And when we do that, it confounds the world. The world just can't get it. Who are you people? Freddie Carter confounded the world. With her terminal illness that went on and on, I never heard a complaint. Never. Her family members that were with her day and night cannot tell me of a complaint. In hospital, at home, always praising God. Now, I'm sure that you'll be able to record some grumbles from me when that time comes. One kind or another, but I don't want to, and I'll bet you don't either. Reading a Spurgeon sermon, I've been reading Spurgeon since I was a teenager. One of his early sermons on some text wasn't this one. Some early text, he told this story of this um, woman, she was Welch, I think, and she's dying, she's on her deathbed. Her Her pastor comes to her and says, Sister, are you sinking? Sister, are you sinking? Sister, are you sinking? And she began to be a bit irritated, and she says, Have you ever seen anyone sink through a rock? Confounds the world. Yes, I'm dying, but it's gain. It's all gain. And so the challenge to my heart and to yours is in the midst of the fallenness of this world, the brokenness of this world, that's when we do not become cynical. That's when we do not grumble. That's when we do not complain. That's when we are not going to be curved in upon ourselves. That's the very time in which we need to be Christ-centered, 
Christ-centered, Christ-centered, and we need to learn to praise. In it all, through it all, come what may, Christ is Lord, Christ be praised. So the last word of doxology is amen. So let it be. And this you can say if your heart is gripped by God's grace. Is it? To him that loved us and gave himself for our sins. The old hymn writer put it this way. To him that loved the souls of men and washed them in his blood, to royal honors raised our head and made us priests to God. To him let every tongue be praised and every heart be loved. All grateful honors paid on earth and nobler songs above. Amen. And amen.